Okay, take your Bible. Go to Luke chapter 16, all right? Luke chapter 16. We uh, broke into a brand new series of messages last week entitled One Minute After You Die. We have a lot of colloquialisms in our culture, things we say at funerals or when someone passes on, and, 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 and I want you to figure out how many of them are actually accurate, and I want you to understand and grow into a relationship regarding your knowledge of death and the afterlife as to exactly what happens one minute after we die. Now, I told you last time, I haven't addressed this subject very often, and I'm not exactly sure why. There are several reasons. I know that one reason is nothing makes you sound more like an old-fashioned preacher than when you start talking about death, the afterlife, heaven and hell, angels and demons. Uh, it turns a lot of people off. Now, it doesn't mean that the message isn't important, doesn't need to be brought, uh, but I don't know, maybe I'm more of a here and now kind of person. Maybe I realize that our culture is kind of moving in that direction, kind of an instant message culture, a here and now. When you start talking about death and the afterlife, heaven and hell, people assume that you're like in the dark ages. It's some kind of antiquated medieval religious theory or fairy tale. I find in our culture that people want to believe in goodness. They want to believe in God. They want to believe in angels. Uh, there are a lot of people out there who believe that there's a guardian angel for each of us and that God is guiding us through this life and helping us through our difficulty. But strangely enough, those same people refuse to believe in an enemy. The Bible calls him Satan, the angel of death, as well as his demons. Uh, the Bible assures us that both are real. Last week, I shared this passage with you. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We ended our message last week with three simple statements. I want to begin here before we springboard forward to Luke chapter 16. Number one, Satan, our enemy, masquerades as an angel of light. You need to understand that in our culture, your enemy wants you to believe that there are no consequences after death. According to Scripture, nothing could be farther from the truth. Number two, it's not the transition that ought inspire us or interest us. It's the destination that really matters. Uh, what it looks like when we peer through the curtain of death or what it feels like when our body stops working and our soul or spirit departs from it for, uh, for an eternal existence, that shouldn't matter. What matters is where are we going to wind up for all of eternity? And number three, we're far better off trusting someone who is actually dead. You see, the gospel of Christ is not built around the near-death experience of Jesus. Uh, it's built around his actual death on Friday and his actual resurrection on Sunday, that someone is Jesus. He was not someone near death. He was someone dead and then alive again. The very last book in your Bible begins in Revelation chapter 1 this way. Do not be afraid, John. Jesus is speaking to John. I am the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and Omega. I'm the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, Multiple times a year, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you this. If word gets out, so be it. I'll deal with the backlash. Multiple times a year, I do a funeral for someone who doesn't attend this church or any church in our community. Uh, my name is on a list. There are several funeral homes that will call me periodically. In fact, I do more funerals annually for people outside this church than I ever do for people inside this church. That's because you people are so young and vibrant. Um, 
But the call comes, and it's somebody wants me to do a funeral for their relative. It's their grandmother. It's their father. It's their brother. Uh, they've pulled my name off a list. They very likely don't even know me. They may know of, of you or this church, and, and maybe they're impressed by you in this church, and maybe that's why they call me. But either way, I go and I have a sit down with the family, and you'd be surprised to know how often families want a minister to do a non-religious funeral service. Whenever I sit down with a family, I'm thinking of one in particularly that in particular that I just did a couple of months ago, and someone says, "Now look, he was a good man. I mean, he was a good man. In fact, I want to tell you all the stories that I want you to share to the audience. Um, uh, I want to tell you all the good things this person did. This man was successful in our community. Uh, this man made a lot of money. This man was well-known. But now, we don't want you to be too religious. Uh, we want you to tell the stories. We want you to make people feel comfortable. We hope you'll make people laugh when you tell some of those stories. But when it gets time for the sermon, be very brief, okay? Because this was a good man, and, and this was um, a, a pillar in our community. This was a successful man, but he wasn't very religious. And so I always sit down with the funeral, and the question I try to ask diplomatically is, why do you want a religious funeral then? Why do you want someone like me to conduct this funeral? Why do you want me to conduct this ceremony? Why not do it yourself? Why not do it some other way? Why does it have to be done in a church? Or why do I have to bring my Bible? Why in the world? And the problem that I can't seem to communicate is that funerals of that nature are always dark. They're always gloomy. You see, when, when people consider themselves good people, I'm basically a good person. You know, I give to the Boys and Girls Club. Uh, I built the wing on the such and such building at Georgia Southern. I am, I am involved in my community. I've made a name for myself over the past 40 years in Bullock County or Candler County. So when you come to bury me, just don't say much that's religious because I'm really not a religious man. The Bible has something to say about that. You see, whenever I have a funeral to do like that, I insist. Now, look, I'm going to tell you what I believe about Jesus, and I'm going to tell you what I believe about death. I have to do that. If you won't let me do that, then I'm not going to do this funeral. And most every family reluctantly agrees. But when someone offers no evidence of authentic faith in Christ, it makes their passing dark and gloomy and hopeless. I told you last time that if you are a follower of Christ, I pray your life is, bears evidence to that fact. But if not, be sure and explain that to your children. You don't want to be one of these people who says, well, look, I'm basically a good person. I believe in God. Don't go to church. James had something strong to say about that kind of person in his epistle. James was the half-brother of Jesus. And in James chapter 2, verse 14, James said, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Now, here's how we would say that. We wouldn't say he claims to have faith but has no deeds. We would say, well, he's basically a good person, but he just doesn't go to church. We would say he believes in God, but he's not very religious. We would say he wants to do the right thing. He's built a name for himself in this community. After all, nobody's perfect, so we can't hold that against him, but... He doesn't like religion. James said, what good is it, my brother, if you have to have claim to have faith, but you have no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without food and daily uh, clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and be well fed. 
but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it in the same way? Faith by itself. Well, I'm basically a good person. I believe in God. I don't go to church. I don't read the Bible. I don't really pray. I don't believe what you believe. What good is it, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, it is dead. Now, you can't address a series titled One Minute After You Die Without Addressing Death. Uh, in the Bible, there are basically three forms of death, three kinds of death according to both Old Testament and New Testament. The first, we have to remember that death originated, death was created, if you will, all the way back in the beginning, Genesis chapter 3. When man chose to go his own way as opposed to God's way, the universe fell from his original glory and introduced to the existence of mankind, both body, soul, and spirit, was death. The first kind of death the Bible talks about is spiritual death. Spiritual death is separation from God because God is righteous and I am unrighteous. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 and in Romans chapter 5 that we were all born into that condition. We were all born spiritually dead, alive physically, but spiritually we were dead. The second kind of death is, of course, physical death. That's the kind of death we're most familiar with. Physical death is when the, the, the soul separates from the body. Now, interestingly enough, biblical authors never teach that in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, whether it's the historical books or the poetic books or the prophets, they never explain that process. There's not a passage that we can turn to that explains what happens when your body dies. The authors just assume that's what happened. In other words, they wrote with the assumption that when you die, your soul or your spirit or whatever you want to call it, leaves your body. Physical death is the second form of death. The third form of death is called eternal death. And that is often called the second death in the book of Revelation, the second death. Eternal death is eternal spiritual separation from God. Now, when we talk death... And we talk Old Testament because that's where we need to begin. I need to introduce you to an Old Testament Hebrew word. It's called sheol. Here it is. S-H-E-O-L, sheol. In the Old Testament, this word is used 66 times. And almost half of those times, it's been translated into English as grave. The other half of the times, it's translated into English as death. There are about three times that it's translated as pit. So, sheol means hell, grave, pit. Hell, hell and death, interchangeable sometimes. I'll get to that in a minute. Hell, grave, and pit. Sheol is the one word that describes in the Old Testament the assumed word, the assumed afterlife. It is the place of departed souls in the Old Testament. The reason we believe today that when you die, your spirit goes somewhere is because in the Old Testament, the word sheol introduced us to that uh, idea or that composition. Now listen very carefully. There are other words in the Hebrew language for death and for grave and for pit and for hell, 
But Sheol is often used when it is connected to a spiritually significant truth or a spiritual significant uh, destination, a destination that's beyond the grave. Sheol in the Old Testament, when the Old Testament writers wrote the word, the Hebrew word Sheol, they were referring to a conscious afterlife. And interestingly enough, sometimes this word is translated one way, sometimes it's translated others, sometimes it refers to death in a positive way, a positive place, a good place, other times a bad place, a dark place. Same word. In fact, I'll give you two examples, and there are many. I'll give you two. In Job chapter 24 and verse 19, the Bible says the grave snatches away the sinner. That word grave is, tra- is, comes, is translated grave from the word sheol, and it describes an undesirable place for the wicked. Sheol on one side is undesirable for the wicked. The word sheol translated grave, and then the author writes, the grave snatches away the sinner. The picture that's painted in that passage is one of an undesirable place for the living conscious spirit of the dead. However, in other places like Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, it's called a refuge for the righteous. Again, remember, same word, sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative. In Hosea chapter 13 and verse 14, the Bible says that I have been saved or ransomed from Sheol. Okay, Sheol being almost like a destination for departed souls that's divided into two compartments. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about baptism, and I said, sometimes that Greek word baptizo, baptizo is the Greek word beta, alpha, pi, baptizo, sometimes it's translated in your New Testament, it means wash or cleanse or clean or dip or plunge. But other times, when there's a spiritual significance attached to it, it's transliterated. You remember that? So they take an English letter and put it with beta. Well, that would be B. Alpha, that would be A. And then P, T, I, Z, E. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Baptize, baptizo. The same process happens in your Old Testament with the word shield. Sometimes that word is translated grave or pit or death or hell even. Other times it is transliterated, S-H-E-O-L, especially when there's a spiritual significance that's attached to it. Let me give you two quick examples. If you have a King James version of the Bible, which, by the way, if you're still reading the King James version of the Bible, my question to you is why we don't speak like that any longer. Uh, You'd be far better served to get an NIV, a New American Standard, an English Standard Version, ESV, get one of those more modern translations because... In the old King James, every time the word shield shows up, they chose grave, pit, hell, or death. But in the more modern translations, knowing that the author was not referring to a hole in the ground, a grave at a cemetery, he was referring to a conscious afterlife, they transliterated the word to shield. Let me give you an example. From the New American Standard Version, Genesis 37, Jacob, remember, the fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had a son among many who was named Joseph. And at one point in Jacob's life, he thought his son was dead. Okay, 
At that point, he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning. Now, stop for a minute and look at this because I'm going to show you two things from that one simple phrase. Jacob thought his son was dead. What he's trying to communicate is, for the rest of my life until I die, I'm going to be in mourning. When I die, I will take my mourning, watch, down to Sheol. Biblical authors, especially Old Testament biblical authors, believe that this place called Sheol was beneath the surface of the earth, perhaps at the center of the earth. In the center of the earth, that's where the spirits of the dead go for all of eternity, according to the Old Testament. What Jacob is saying is, my son is dead, at least he thought he was dead. I'm going to mourn until I die, and when I die, I will go down to Sheol. But Jacob was one of the fathers of God's people. So we can safely assume that Jacob wasn't going down with evil. We would say he's going up to heaven. See, very different from our idea of hell is down and heaven is up. The Old Testament points to the afterlife as down at the center of the earth, but it's divided into two compartments. One is desirable for the righteous. One is a place of torment for the wicked. Okay, now... Another passage where it's not transliterated, it's translated, is in the NIV version of your Bible, the version I use on Sundays. It's Isaiah 14, verse 9. The Bible says, the grave, that is the Hebrew word, sheol. The grave below is all astir to meet you at your coming. Now, listen, we obviously know that the author is not saying that six-foot-deep hole in the cemetery is all astir because they're about to lay your body in it. What he's describing is the place of the afterlife, where the spirits go after death. So here's what we learn from the Old Testament regarding one minute after you die in Sheol. Here's number one. Sheol is separate from the grave where the body rests. Isaiah 14, verse 9. I just showed you that. Okay. Number two. Sheol is not part of this existence. Now, I bring that to your attention because... Some people believe, our Jehovah Witness friends, they believe that this is Sheol, that our existence is hell. And in this hell, we earn our way up to paradise. That's what they believe, okay? According to Ezekiel chapter 26 and verse 20, the Bible talks about going, being cast down into Sheol, cast down into the pit. It happens after this body expires. It's a place for the departed souls. Number three, the Bible teaches that Sheol is a place of reunion with loved ones. In Genesis chapter 49, the very last verse in that chapter, Jacob is on his deathbed, and the Bible says that he folded his, his hands, he took his last breath, and he went to be with his people. Uh, the Bible teaches that Sheol is a place of being reunited with loved ones. Number four, Sheol is divided into two different regions. Psalm 49, verses 13 through 15. I'm going to show you that passage in just a second. The Old Testament paints a picture of life after death as being in one of two different regions, one of two different compartments. One is upper or lower. One is for the, the, the wicked. One is for the righteous. But there are two separate places, but they're under one name, and that name is Sheol. The dead of the Old Testament, from Adam to Abraham to Moses to David, were in Sheol one minute after they died. Listen to Psalm 49, verse 13. The Bible says, Like sheep... 
They are destined for the grave. There it is translated. Sheol is translated grave. But it's not talking about the hole in the ground at the cemetery. It's talking about the destination of their spirit or their soul. And death will feed on them. The upright, now we're talking about someone different. The upright will rule over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave far from their princely mansions. But God will redeem my life from the sheol, from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. Now, the Old Testament gives us very little insight into life after death, the afterlife, heaven and hell. Most of what you've heard at a funeral, most of what you've said to comfort a child who's lost a grandparent did not come from Old Testament theology. The Old Testament, based upon what I've shown you in this kind of brief overview, barely cracks the door on the, old, on the idea of life after death. The New Testament, however, throws it wide open. And everything, almost everything we know and believe about life after death, heaven and hell, what happens one minute after we die, comes from the New Testament. Specifically, it comes from Luke chapter 16 and a parable, a story that Jesus told about two men who died and where they went. Now, before we get into this, you need to understand this. We're about to make a transition from Old Testament Hebrew language to New Testament Greek language. Old Testament sheol is the same word, the same idea, the same principle, and a very similar teaching to the New Testament Hades. I don't know if you know this or not, but before Jesus was ever born, Greek became the language of the world. And so Greek speakers translated the Old Testament Hebrew literature into the Greek language. That document is called the Septuagint. And every time those Greek translators came across the Hebrew word sheol when translating the Old Testament, they translated it Hades. Interestingly enough, when the New Testament was composed, every New Testament author, when quoting the Old Testament, now you've seen this, you're reading your Bible and all of a sudden it'll say, as it is written. And then all of a sudden there'll be an indention in the text or the margin will change because whoever it is, Paul or Peter, whoever it is, they're quoting the Old Testament. When the New Testament authors quoted the Old Testament and they came across that word shield, they also, because they were writing in Greek, translated it to the word Hades. Now, very carefully hear what I'm about to say. Like Sheol, like Sheol in Hebrew, there were many other Greek words for death, dying, the grave, hell. So in the New Testament, every time they use the word Hades, it's because they meant to attach that spiritual significance to it. It was always used for the world of departed spirits. In other words, if they meant a hole in the ground at the cemetery, they wrote grave. If they meant a place of departed souls in torment, they wrote hell. But when they talked about that all-encompassing life after death, the afterlife, where the spirit of the soul goes, they use the word Hades. And the greatest example, in my opinion, my humble opinion, is Luke chapter 16. Now, before we get into this, I need to remind you of something that I've told you before. And I've had personal conversations with some of you, and this is not easily understood nor explained. Very often when Jesus is teaching, he's addressing a crowd, but he's aiming at the Pharisees. Okay? 
Have you ever read through, let's take a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is contained in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And you come across something that says, if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he's guilty of adultery. And you scratch your head and you say, how can that possibly be? And those people who approach this book as a rule book, they start teaching that verse as a rule. Can't look at a woman with a lust in your heart. It's like it is committing adultery. And you're thinking to yourself, now, come on, we know it's not the same. There's another part that says, if you have hate in your heart for someone else, you're guilty of murder. Now, why would he say that? Why would Jesus make a statement like that? And why do we then, sadly, some who take the Bible as a rule book, say, okay, you can't hate anybody because if you hate anybody, you're guilty of murder. Really? Look, it's because Jesus was addressing the, 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 the point of his spear, the point of his comments to the Pharisees who held the corner on righteousness. You see, Jesus was the new kid on the block. The Pharisees were the standard for righteousness. Very often when Jesus is teaching, very often when Jesus is communicating to a large crowd, he'll say things that are aimed or intended on convincing Pharisees that they're not as righteous as they they think. That's the reason Jesus says things like this. Such is the case in Luke chapter 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I barely got enough time to finish this, so I'm going to go quickly. You follow me. Verse 19. Here it goes. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Now, let me just stop and start by telling you those are the Pharisees. The rich man in this story represents the Pharisees who thought they were righteous. Look, Fine linen, purple, these were signs of wealth in the first century. Like the, pro, the prosperity gospel teachers of today, the Pharisees believed we are wealthy because we are righteous and God is blessing us. See, there are people who believe that today. That the reason we're wealthy is because we're so righteous, God is blessing us. The reason you're poor is because you're unrighteous and God is not. That's the picture of this rich man. Now, in contrast, verse 20, at his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Very interesting. Hold on. I want to draw you a picture. Maybe Jesus used the name Lazarus because Lazarus was a Greek form of a Hebrew name, which meant God is my helper. God is my helper. You see, what made the rich man unrighteous was not his money. Some of the most righteous people in your Bible were wealthy beyond imagination. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with material gain. What made the rich man unrighteous was he trusted in that gain. He believed that gain was evidence that he was righteous, just like the Pharisees. What made Lazarus poor and suffering and sick was not his sin. What made him righteous was the fact that he trusted God as his helper. It's very interesting to me that Jesus draws such a, a polar opposite position. You know, we think of heaven as just like the world's greatest thing way up there, and the polar opposite of heaven is way down there. It's horrible place of torment. That's hell. Jesus does the same thing with this rich man. There's this rich man beyond wealth. I mean, he imports purple dye to color his clothes. He's so wealthy. He wears fine linen undergarments that the common man can only imagine. 
He is wealthy. He lives in luxury. And then there's this poor beggar. This poor beggar is so poor that he wishes he could just eat the crumbs falling from that man's table. But it's not just that he's poor. He's poor. He's also sick. It's not just that he's poor and he's sick. He's so sick that the neighborhood dogs gather around him and lick on his sores. I mean, Jesus is painting a diametrically opposed uh, picture of these two men. Keep reading. And the reason he's doing that is because that's what heaven and hell are like. He goes on, verse 22. The time came for the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Stop. For the first time ever in the history of your Bible, someone has named that upper compartment of Sheol, that good compartment of Sheol. First time ever. Hadn't happened until now. Jesus said that old time, Old Testament Sheol place of blessing, we're going to now call it Abraham's side. Your King James reads Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died. He was buried in Hades. Now, here's what Jesus has done in this one parable. He said, okay, you're familiar with Sheol. That's the place where departed spirits go, and some are blessed and some are cursed. Look, I'm going to name the place that are where they're blessed. We're going to call that Abraham's side. By the way, he also called it paradise. In uh, Luke chapter 24, I think, or 23, 23 verse 43, he's dying on the cross, and this thief beside him says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What did Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise. He could have said, today you will be with me at Abraham's side. We would say, today you will be with me in heaven. Okay, keep reading. Verse 23, in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember in your lifetime, you received all your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us, there is a great chasm it has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. But the rich man answered, then I beg you, send Lazarus to my family. He's saying, enable Lazarus to rise from the dead and go visit my brothers. Again, remember who Jesus is talking to. Jesus would be dead at the hands of the Pharisees on Friday, and on Sunday he would be alive again. And yet, did that cause any of the Pharisees to believe? Maybe two, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, but all the rest only doubled down on their hatred for Jesus. But this man thinks, if you'll send Lazarus to my brothers, he can turn them around. They need to repent. I have five brothers, verse 28. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. What did Jesus try to convince the Pharisees? You have Moses and you have prophets. You ought to know I'm your Messiah. But did they? No, they did not. They still searched and sought for a sign. Verse 30. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if, one, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Verse 31. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Very quickly, two minutes and I'll quit. Here's what we learn from this passage about one minute after we die. Number one, wealth or poverty mean absolutely nothing one minute after you die. That's why Jesus said, 
Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. When you die, you want to be rich toward God, not rich toward yourself. Because wealth nor poverty mean anything one minute after you die. Number two, you will be fully conscious one minute after you die. Did you notice the rich man saw Lazarus? He saw Abraham. The rich man remembered his family. The rich man was fully conscious of his torment. Number three, your eternal destiny is fixed and unchangeable one minute after you die, according to what Jesus said. So when we bury your body and your family hugs necks, and then we all drive off to someone's house to eat fried chicken, we still have options you will not, because your eternal destiny will be fixed. Number three, you will know that your position is fair and just one minute after you die. Did you notice when I read that, not once did the man complain that his situation was unfair? He complained of the torment. He complained of the pain, the sorrow. But as evidenced by his desire to have someone go and warn his brothers, this man knew that where he was was both fair and just, and he knew it one minute after he died. Number five, Hades is not hell. Hades that he speaks of here is not hell as we know it. For the scripture says in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14, one day there is coming a judgment. It is the great white throne judgment where the dead from all ages will stand before Christ. And when their name cannot be found in the Lamb's book of life, the Bible says the dead and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. The hell as we know it, the lake of fire, the place of everlasting torment is not out there yet, but it will one day be. And then finally, Abraham's side, paradise, heaven, you might as well see them as the same. Abraham's bosom, paradise, heaven, you might as well see them as the same. Now, at some point in the New Testament, many Bible theologians tell us that Jesus took those from Abraham's bosom and took them to heaven, but I'm not so sure that's important for us in our study today. You need to see Abraham's bosom, paradise, and heaven as basically the same. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1 tells us that heaven as we know it hasn't been constructed yet anyway because John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth, the one we would say we know, had passed away. Now, heaven and hell are for real. Maybe you don't hear me say that very often. I bring a series of messages like this to you today because I know some of you are like this rich man. You're basically a good person. I want you to know what's going to happen to all of us one minute after we die. The rich man thought if my brothers could only get a sign from God, they'd turn from their sin, they'd repent, they'd find forgiveness. And today, even though the evidence of Christ's resurrection is overwhelming, many of you ch still choose not to believe. And that troubles me greatly because according to Jesus, I know exactly what's going to happen to you one minute after you die. If you'd like to talk about that, that's why I'm here. Please find me after the service. Use the communication card. Let's nail this down today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such a clear story. And not just a story, a story that communicates eternal truth. Father, may we respond to it today, I pray, in the name of your risen son, Jesus. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Great to see you today. You make it a fantastic week, and I'll see you next time.